This episode of the podcast is supported by Bounce Athletics. They are offering you an additional 10% discount just for listening to the 343 podcast. Bounce Athletics can help you differentiate your club or team with custom NFHS and FIFA approved training balls for a fraction of the cost. They arrive customized with your logo and color scheme for about $15 to $20 per ball. Similar textured training balls from Nike, Adidas, or Select would be in the $50 to $60 range. Custom training balls from Bounce Athletics feature a variety of textured polyurethane and microfiber outers with cutting-edge, seamless hybrid production technology. And they also help solve a big problem that coaches know all too well. Here is Zach, the co-founder of Bounce Athletics, to tell you about that problem. What's funny is one of the biggest issues everybody has is balls losing their air, and then the coach spends the first... 15 minutes of every session pumping soccer balls up and you know every every ball we have utilizes kind of the newest technology and butyl bladders so that they're they're holding air for the duration of, of most seasons and maybe uh you know four five six weeks into the season the coach will have to top them off a little bit the balls are legit i've personally tested them and i highly recommend them and don't forget 343 listeners get an additional 10% discount when you mention the 343 podcast. Just email your logo to info at bounceathletics.com to begin the order process and also receive some complimentary design mock-ups. Later in the show, Zach will return to talk about another problem that Bounce Athletics can help players, coaches, and teams solve. So stay tuned for that. For now, just enjoy the episode. This is the 343 podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. Kira McCormick is a retired international footballer with experience in multiple countries, including Canada, Australia, and the United States. She wrote and published a story about an incident happening in Australian soccer that really caught my attention. So I asked if she would be interested in discussing it with me, and thankfully she said yes. And I did not anticipate the conversation going the way that it did, and it went in a very good direction in my opinion. Kira had no problem talking about some of the most important issues that are plaguing North America and Australia when it comes to football. And she is just the type of person that I love talking to. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation with her. Don't forget that if you do like this conversation and you do like this podcast, that you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. I'm also sure that there are many other podcast services out there that you can subscribe to the show on. So whatever tickles your fancy, just go for that one. Uh, If you enjoy what we talk about here on this podcast, you can also help other people find the show by giving it a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or giving it a review or just simply sharing it on social media. But the absolute best way to support the 343 podcast is by signing up for the 343 Premium Coaching Membership Program. It is an online program that provides you with the best coaching education for a fraction of the price when compared to other licenses and courses that are out there. It is a program that I am a member of myself, and it is a program that has completely changed and improved the way that I coach my teams. I have personally studied and used all of the activities that you get when you sign up for the membership. And if you can't tell, I highly recommend it. 
343 membership program teaches you the proven possession-based methodology and allows you to study and learn from one of the best coaches in American soccer. The membership includes videos of real training sessions, videos of real matches, the 12 core activities to help you start coaching possession soccer, ebooks, audio lessons, recorded presentations and clinics, plus you get forums for networking and sharing ideas with other 343 coaches. And you get all of that for just $295. That is an incredible value. To learn more about that program and to see a little bit of the videos uh, that we've put out there on the internet that kind of show exactly what we're talking about, you can see all of that at 343coaching.com. Once again, that is 343coaching.com. Okay, that's it for the intro. I hope that you are ready for this exciting conversation and I hope that you enjoy my chat with Kira McCormick. Cool. Um, well, for context, the best place to start is always an introduction and a little bit of a background on, on who you are to kind of, you know, I don't want to say qualify why, um, you know, the, the rest of this interview is, is going to matter in, in my opinion, because I think it does, it, it really, really matters. Um, but, you know, to, to kind of tell people about your own personal experience in the game and, and why you have some of the opinions and why you've, um, why, why you wrote the story that caught my attention, actually. Um, that, that's the whole reason why I wanted to interview you is I, I came across a story that you published and I thought it was an amazing story and wanted to talk to you about it. So, um, backtracking to how, you know, or what I just started to say was, you know, a, a proper introduction from you about your playing experience and, and where the game is taking you, I think is, is the best place to start. So I'm just going to, you know, leave you with that and then see what you say. Yeah, I grew up in Vancouver. I, as a high school player, um, was like a bench warmer on my team, eighth going into ninth grade. Um, I actually joke around that I got my big break in ninth grade when one of my teammates got grounded for sneaking out and wasn't allowed to go to soccer for a month. And so that was sort of my big break in my high school career. Um, and I think for me, I, yeah, so I was kind of the kid that, I mean, I didn't get coached very well. My dad was my coach growing up and he didn't really know much about soccer. Um, you're sort of typical kid in Canada in the eighties probably. Um, but yeah, I, I basically, um, kind of going into 10th grade, I, we went on, um, a trip to New York and Boston with my provincial team. And that was kind of the first time for me that I saw that, you know, there was a whole world out there that, um, you know, to play college soccer at, we were on Dartmouth campus. We stayed on Hofstra's campus for the tournament we were at. Um, and so that was kind of, for me, like the switch in my head where I really kind of buckled down and got serious about, um, I always was pretty serious and like loved soccer, but um, that's kind of when it switched for me. And at that sort of crucial age when kind of people go one way or the other, um, I kind of really put my head down and started to work really hard. Um, and then basically, you know, it was like the late nineties in Canada. Um, we, the internet wasn't really, you know, where it was at now. Um, so it was literally like go to the library, get a massive book of us universities and just start writing everybody. Um, so my dad really helped me with that. And I ended up sending out, um, letters to like a hundred schools, 
Um, and then the coach from Yale actually called me and, and, uh, he's hilarious and we just hit it off right off the bat. Um, and basically that's where I ended up, um, going to college. So I had, um, my four years at Yale. Um, again, I was a bench warmer through my whole career at Yale. I only started once. Um, and then going into my senior year at Yale, uh, that summer before I played for a team that was like stacked with Boston college, Syracuse, UConn players. Um, and UConn was top 10 in the country at the time. So it was a very, very good team. Um, and again, that was kind of a pivotal moment for me. Um, I had a coach that summer that uh, just really believed in me. And like I said, I'd been a bench warmer at Yale the three years previous. So, um, but again, even through that whole time at Yale, I still wanted to play professionally and internationally. Um, so anyways, yeah, I basically that, uh, that summer we won the U.S. under 20 nationals. The UConn coach happened to see me play and I had a really good game when he saw me play with his players. Um, and basically going into my senior year and preseason, I tore my MCL. So that kind of opened the door again to go through the recruiting process again. Um, and just honestly, because of that one game I played really well in, I ended up getting, um, a full ride to UConn. Um, so I missed my senior year at Yale, graduated and then went to play at UConn my fifth year and up tearing my MCL again, which was pretty unfortunate, but um, had a great experience at both Yale and UConn. Um, and then my coach from that summer going into UConn had a connection in Denmark with Fortuna Juring because um, they had gone to Dana Cup uh, tournament that the club runs. Um, so basically, I talked to him because I wanted to play overseas. And then he set me up with a tryout after I was finished at UConn. Um, and then I, you know, didn't really pack very much because I didn't want to come home with a whole bunch of bags, you know, a week after getting cut. So I went over with, to Denmark with not that much, tried out, made the team. Um, and again, it was this incredible team of like basically all Danish national team players, a couple of players that had played um, at the Olympics for Australia. Um, and I was one of the youngest players on the team. And that team actually, we went all the way to the Champions League final that year. Um, like I got to play in the semifinals against Arsenal um, I got injured right before the final, um, but that I, I actually, I guess, historically, my teammate Stacy, who had gone to University of Indiana, her and I were the first North Americans to ever uh, be a part of a Champions League final on the female side. So that was a pretty cool accomplishment. Um, and I stayed over in Denmark for another couple of seasons, came back and played in Vancouver for the Whitecaps for a couple of seasons, went back overseas to Norway and played for three years in Norway um, under some incredible coaches. Um, and then in 2011, I came back, um, and at that point I was about 30, 31 and I kind of felt like I needed to kind of get my life together outside of women's soccer, just cause it's not the most lucrative career. Um, and I came back to the States and I was, uh, I played for the Whitecaps in 2011 in the summer. And then I played for new England mutiny and that kind of hybrid league right after WPSL had fallen apart. Um, and then I basically sort of set a goal in my head. I got injured the summer with New England, but I really wanted to play in Australia. So I went over um, and tried out for uh, Sydney FC, which is the story kind of tied into what I wrote about. Um, I was there for a couple of weeks, ended up um, Newcastle needed some defenders. So I went up a couple hours north to Newcastle and ended up playing um, as an international player in the W League in Australia for the season. Um, and then that was pretty much it in terms of like I, I play for fun now in like a local women's league and stuff. But yeah, that was pretty much my uh, playing career. Damn, you went through so much so fast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, my injury alone could probably be 45 minutes, so yeah. I tried to condense it. But yeah, I, so yeah, I, I mean, I, oh, and I guess also I forgot to mention in there, I also, 
um, got called in and played for Ireland um, when the U.S. had just won the 2008 uh, Olympic gold medal. They did like a tour. And so I actually got my first caps for Ireland playing against the U.S. Um, we played in Chicago at Giant Stadium and uh, whatever the field in Philly is. So those are my first three caps were playing against the U.S. gold medal team, which is slightly daunting. Um, and I, yeah, so I played for Ireland then for a few years in there as well. My parents are Irish. Obviously, I don't have a very strong Irish accent, if anyone's wondering. Um, but yeah, I have a dual citizenship. So that's how I ended up playing for Ireland. You, you just said so. that it was kind of daunting playing against the U.S. women's national team, but you'd also mentioned in in that in that intro that you were on teams that had Australian national team players and Danish national team players and 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 uh, imagine that you played with you know maybe some uh of the national team players or played against some of the national team players during your college career so so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious like what what was the daunting what was the most daunting part of that um you know it, it's funny I actually as a player struggled with a lot of anxiety um like really crippling anxiety so I think like everything was daunting um and it was kind of something that I was continually I think I think for me like I never um like I said I always felt like I was playing catch up as a player um I joke around that even like hitting long balls it wasn't until I was probably like 25 that I hit a long ball and was like pretty certain where it was gonna go <laughs> um <laughs> So I think in that sense, like I, I don't know, I think partly, I, and, and I think for maybe that was part of the reason I just always felt, um, yeah, I always had a lot of kind of anxiety around stuff, but, um, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, the, these are players like, uh, I played against Carly Boyd for 90 minutes in center mid at giant stadium. Like it was pretty, you know, like, yeah, it was, it was some pretty like big experiences, um, yeah. And I think, I, I mean, I, as I got older and as you're playing in those environments and even I actually tallied it up at one point and, um, like, I think even just in terms of teammates through the years, I played with players from like 10 different countries. Like I played with Faye White, that was the captain of, um, of England in Ottawa. I played with Jody Taylor, um, in Ottawa. Um, yeah, like tons of players from tons of different countries. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, I think, like I said, the daunting part came from maybe like a bit of anxiety myself as a, as a player, but, um, it was, I mean, I think it's just a lot of respect for the players that I was playing against and, you know, just the normal kind of butterflies and stuff when you're playing players at that level. Um, and I think maybe also I never just, I never sort of thought of my, well, I always aspired to play at that level, but then once you actually get there, it was kind of like a little bit overwhelming sometimes. But I think as I got older, like that's why I, I enjoyed my experience in Australia so much because um, like I hadn't actually played at the highest level for a couple of years and trained at that like everyday type of level. And then all of a sudden I'm playing against like Lisa Devanna and um, Sam Kerr and Jody Taylor and like <laughs> some fairly legit players. So, um, but at that point, like I'd sort of just, I really, you know, I was like in my, towards my mid thirties at that point and just really enjoying the whole, you know, just kind of soaking it all in more as opposed to all the stress I used to feel when I was younger. Well, I want to, I want to, you know, I want to just fast forward immediately to your time in Australia and, and really kind of tie the, the, the story together to the blog post that you, that you released recently. Um, so you, you go through this, 
kind of just you know wild career of you know going back and forth uh, across the Atlantic and and you know going to all these different teams and you experience all these different coaches and you you had a, actually um, mentioned at the beginning of your intro that you you never um, you never had like a like a good coaching experience as a youth player. And the, so here you are. Don't tell uh, my dad that. Yeah, don't, don't share the episode with him then. <laughs> um, but but you go through like you know, yeah, like tw- like twenty years, twenty five years worth of um, you know experiencing coaches and teams in different countries and and whatnot. And then here you are in Australia, and it seems like this you know one particular coach and this one particular experience really stood out to you as as something remarkable and and. and um, I want to hear you talk a little bit about that initial experience of going there and, and, and what made it so special. And then we can kind of transition into the the more current event of, of what happened. Yeah. Well, I mean that the story with Australia comes up my playing career in the sense that like nothing ever was like a linear experience. And, and there was always like some crazy story attached to everything that happened. But um, pretty much what happened was, like I said, I had sort of set the goal to play in Australia. Um, and I trained really hard that year going into the, the season started in, uh, like October ish. And so, um, I pretty much wrote every single, you know, team and Adelaide, uh, a team in the South of Australia had messaged me back and said that, you know, they wanted to sign me and all this. So I was pretty excited and, and I had it set. And then, um, Bob, who plays for, she's a keeper for Australia for a really long time. I think she's still with um, one of the Melbourne teams in the W League. But um, I'd gotten to know her because, again, the women's soccer community is pretty small. And I'd been over in Denmark visiting friends with Fortuna. And um, Bob's happened to be playing for Fortuna at the time. So we connected there. Um, and then when I was coming to Australia, Bob's was going to be on Adelaide as well. So we'd sort of started chatting about just the fact that I was going to be, we were going to be playing together that season. Um, and then it was just, again, typical women's soccer. You know, two weeks before I'm, like, ready to go, I get just an email out of the blue from Adelaide saying, hey, we signed somebody else. Um, and so, you know, like, we don't have the spot anymore because there's only three international spots. And so that was obviously pretty devastating because I was all ready to go. Um, and Bob had reached out to me, and I sort of had just kind of embarrassed and told her, like, this is what had happened. And um, it was a really, really, you know, epic act of kindness from her. But she was just like, you know, this is totally unprofessional, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to take it upon myself to message all the coaches in the league and try and at least get you a tryout somewhere, which I thought it was very, very kind of her. So she messaged me right back and she's like, listen, I just talked to um, Alan Sajic, who's the coach, coach at Sydney, and he said that you can come over there and try out. And so I was like, you know what? Okay, like, let's just do this. So I had a good friend that I'd played with in Norway um, that had moved to Sydney. And so I talked to her and I asked her if I could crash at her house for a couple of weeks. And she said I could. So then I bought the ticket and showed up in Sydney. Um, and I, I knew Jody Taylor from playing in Ottawa and she was on the team at the time. Um, but again, like I, I've, I've been in a lot of environments and I kind of, you know, there's just, you know, just like in regular world, there's nice people, there's jerks, there's people that, you know, have a bit of power or not on a power trip. And, um, yeah, for me, like, you know, again, I, I was coming in as kind of this, like Alan was basically doing me a favor to sort of let me come in and try out. And, um, yeah, I, I just, I, again, and, and I think the thing, you know, for us as female players, we're not getting, you know, hardly any money. And it's a, it's a real struggle to just try to, you know, keep playing the game at the highest level. And so, you know, I think it's just the basic 
thing that you want as a female player to just be in a professional, like be treated properly, which is just like a decent human being to a decent human being. Um, you know, and, and again, just being in like a, a professional environment where you have a coach that's motivated and wants you to get better. And, um, and for me, like I, Alan sort of checked all those boxes right away. You know, again, I was uncomfortable coming in in terms of not really knowing anybody and I'm on a tryout and, you know, and, and so he, he just was, he was just a very straightforward, very professional, very kind. He ran great training. The, the training was phenomenal. And obviously the players that were on the team were phenomenal. Um, a lot of Australian national team players, Jody, Emma, Keddie, who plays for New Zealand. Um, so obviously like the, the level of play was very high. Um, and yeah, I, I just, there was, he was just very straightforward and professional were the two things that I remembered about him. And the girls that played for him loved him and, and said really, you know, again, you kind of, as, as female players, that kind of like trust with the coach that they're, you know, they're and, and they're motivated and they want to make you better and they're going to treat you fairly and stuff. And, um, I just found Alan to be very straightforward and, um, he ended up offering me a spot, um, on the team and they were going to the club world championships in Japan a, a month later, which would have been obviously a really cool experience. But at that point in my career, I just wanted to play. And so, um, we, Jody knew someone in Newcastle and they were basically desperate for defenders and players with some experience because they had a really young team. Um, and I ended up just speaking to them and it just seemed like it was a better fit for what I was looking for just because I, I kind of had, I just wanted to play. Um, and Newcastle was more towards the bottom of the league and Sydney was more towards the top. And so, um, I just spoke to Alan after he offered me the spot and just told him, you know, based on my goals of what I was looking to get out of the experience that I thought Newcastle was a better fit. And he was super nice super professional um and that was pretty much my experience with him but um yeah so that's you know again um and I guess we can talk more about what happened you know with the Australian team and stuff but um you know in, in those sorts of situations like I said like there's people you come across and and again I I have nothing but good things to say about my experience with him and and so I just felt that it was kind of necessary to you know, step up and say something. And for me at this point, I mean, I'm not really involved as a player at all anymore. And I've like, I have nothing to gain, nothing to lose. And so I thought my voice would be something that perhaps could contribute just another perspective when, you know, there's lots of sort of, um, it's a very unclear situation. And what you just mentioned right now, like not having anything to, to win or lose is a, is a situation that most female American players or, or maybe just, you know, female soccer players in general, but I'm going to limit it to American females. Cause that's where I have the most, um, experience and, and, and knowledge of mm-hmm. you know, their, their particular environment. And they, they seem to think that they have everything to lose if they say something. And, and I agree with it that's- to, to an extent. Um, mm-hmm. but the longer that, some of these high profile players stay quiet about the environments and the situations that they're put in. They have to realize that it's not just them that, that they're hurting. It's the next generation and, oh, and, 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 the, and the girls that are coming, you know, 10, 15 years from now that are going to experience these same exact things. If nobody starts speaking up and mm-hmm. you know, I, I understand the fear of speaking up and, and the risk that, that it requires. And I don't want to put, you know, unnecessary pressure on anybody i i understand i i completely understand but mm-hmm. um it's it, again it's it's just i'm thinking about the players that aren't yet represented and you know that aren't yet 
on that stage that they're on and how they are going to just unfortunately going to experience that as well. And, and I think about that on the men's side too, with the uh, MLS players association, you know, the, they represent the current MLS players and the deals and, and whatnot, but it's like, they aren't, they aren't yet representing the next wave of players that are coming into MLS and they don't realize mm-hmm. like all these little territories that are set up and where players or where teams can recruit from, whatever that hurts the next generation. So absolutely. long story short, uh, you decided to to speak up about something, and because of the situation that you said that you're in, where you don't have anything to win or lose, you know, it makes it it, it makes this very um, very interesting. Like like you're speaking a truth that a lot of times people see or the girls see it in these environments, but they just can't or won't say anything about it. So I think that what you're what, probably what we're going to get into next is very powerful and I want more people to know about, you know, these types of situations. So you have this, you know, experience down in Australia with, with Alan and, you know, you end up not even playing for him, but then you see something that happens at that club and you decide to kind of, you know, throw, uh, throw your hat in the ring and, and, and I don't know, is that the right expression? Throw your hat in the ring? <laughs> I uh, think so. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, you, you just decide, you decide to start fighting and, and, and I think that's, that's super noble. So I, I want you to kind of maybe describe the situation that happened and what you decided to, to say about it. Well, I just, I, I want to touch on, you've brought up a few points there, uh-huh. um, that I think I, I just want to touch on. I mean, I think for me, like I, I've always been, you know, just even my family background and I always joke like I've got the Irish blood coursing through my veins and, um, you know, and I, I joked when I was younger, I sort of took things on like Conor McGregor style, just like punch the crap out of anything that I didn't think was right and, you know, not thinking long term or whatever. Um, I mean, I, mean I, I think for me, like I, I've throughout my entire career and, and I mean, I've, I've spoken out about a lot of stuff like through the years, both. I mean, I enjoy writing and I, I love the platform that that gives, but also just, you know, I, I've just always, I've always been like a fighter for the underdog, I guess. Just, I don't know, maybe like the Irish history in me, I'm not sure. But, um, but I think I've always, I've always thought it's very important to stand up and say something when people aren't being treated right or, you know, and there's been tons of situations from, you know, like my coach in Denmark would like treated some people that were, you know, like kind of the, the fringe of the team, not very well. And I'd stand up for them. You know, I, like I had a bunch of situations with white caps over the years and the way people got treated and stood up to that. And, you know, and I also, I, I think, you know, for me, I definitely had my own playing career impacted because yeah, you are, you, you are as a female player, like you, we're in a very vulnerable situation in the sense that, you know, um, like we basically give up everything to play, you know, and, um, and, and that's kind of, I can't really emphasize that enough. And, and I think like, for me, I've had a chance to reflect upon my playing years and I joke around that I have PTSD from it because just the, the amount of just stressful and anxiety filled and, and just honestly, some really rotten situations that like I myself witnessed and experienced. Um, and so I think for me, like, I, it used to really frustrate me that other people wouldn't, you know, everyone would be like, Hey, thanks so much for saying something, but don't say I said, thank you. And, you know, and, and I'd be like, man, like would someone just get some balls and like stand up with me for stuff, you know, because this is a part of the problem. And this is what gives, you know, these people that are doing this stuff, the power is that everyone's so freaking scared to say something. But I think as I've gotten older, like I'm a lot more understanding in a sense towards the fact that, you know, even, 
like, let's say with the Australian players, like, you know, there's, they could get cut. Like they, you know, it, it's, they've given up everything. It's the world cup is the, the kind of pinnacle of the whole thing. And, and, you know, so again, uh, like whether, whatever their opinions of the situations are, they are kind of stifled because they could lose everything. And, and we're not like men's soccer players that, you know, you take your 2 million and you get screwed over and you put your feet up for the rest of your life. Like, people have made some epic sacrifices. Like, I don't think you play women's soccer into your like mid twenties, thirties without making major, major sacrifices. But that also gives the people that are running things like a lot of power over you. And there are people that choose to abuse that power. So, um, yeah. So I, I mean, I think it's, on one hand, I think it's easy to say people should speak up more for sure. I mean, again, but I think having been in the situation and experienced it, and even coming from the side of being someone that's more like, less fearful in in stepping up and saying stuff over the years. Like I do think that I have, I think a lot more compassion. I think as I've gotten older towards people that make the choice not to say anything, because to be honest, it's also a very emotionally draining sort of situation as well. And, you know, like you just try to, it's, it's honestly, sometimes I feel like my own experience in women's soccer was basically, you're just honestly just treading water, trying to keep your head above water. And and you really do have to conserve your energy. Um, And you know what I mean? Like you just want to play, you can't fight the fights. And so, like I said, like, I, I feel like at this point for me, you know, and I think also too, to be honest, like I, I don't, I'm a very positive person. I'm a very constructive person. Um, And I think it's also too, where like, you don't like that label of being a troublemaker or whatever. And, and I think for me, it's more of like, as I've gotten older, I'm like, you know, I shouldn't feel ashamed for speaking up about stuff. Like the people doing crappy things, like they're the ones that should feel ashamed and embarrassed. And like that, I shouldn't put that on myself, but I think again, sometimes you do. So um, I think it's, I think it's just very simple to say people should speak up. Of course, of course they should in an ideal world world they should, but I don't think unless you've actually been in the trenches that it's easy to understand just the whole psychological um, aspect of what it's like to be a female soccer player at the highest level. Cause it's like I said, some the, the I've, I'm still, I feel like psychologically recovering from my career and I joke around with that, but I'm also being dead serious about it. Hey, sit tight. We are going to hear a quick message from our sponsor bounce athletics. <laughs> Bounce Athletics are offering you an additional 10% discount just for listening to this episode of the 343 podcast. When I spoke to Zach, the co-founder of Bounce Athletics, he mentioned one of the most common problems that coaches and players and teams have when it comes to their training equipment. This is what he had to say. Finding goals that are portable, um, that can be moved from environment to environment quickly and perform just as well on grass as they do on turf as they do on hardwood or, or wherever you're at. Thankfully, that problem has been solved thanks to the Dynamo goals made by Bounce Athletics. They have revolutionized people's training sessions. For those that don't know, they're a three by five, all aluminum frame. They fold flat in like five seconds and they you pop them back up and a couple seconds. The moment I saw the Dynamo goals in action, I was totally convinced that these were the best goals on the market. And since using the Dynamo goals, I haven't even touched the other goals that I have had for years. And I was curious about who else was already using these. So I asked Zach, and here's what he had to say. Everything from recreational programs that are using them for their 3v3 and 4v4 to college and pro teams that have 20 of them. 343 listeners get an additional 10% discount when you mention the 343 podcast. Just email info at Bounce Athletics to begin the order process. All right, let's get back to the show. 
I guess maybe where my my comment should have been directed is is towards players that again have gone through the experience and now have nothing to win or lose. You know, maybe it's the retired, right. maybe, maybe it's the players that have been in the trenches, like you mentioned, and and are no longer in that environment where they're you know at risk of being cut or or things like that. So maybe that's where yeah. my frustration should really be directed, not at the players that are currently going through it, but at the players that have gone through it and and can help the next generations. But I think also too, and, and I'll be dead honest with you, like I needed to massively separate myself from the whole thing for like a couple of years, just to even have like the desire or strength to even talk about it and even have the, you know, the distance. But but there's also a part of it too, and, and this is something along those lines with those like retired players where like the, the experience can be so draining that you just want to have nothing to do with it anymore. Do you know what I mean? And and I think I think that 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 also plays a role for a lot of people because um, there's just been various situations even in Canada now with like like situations that people that are done could step up and say something about certain stuff. But um, but I think and I know this for myself. Like it's like you have such bad memories from those sort of situations that you were in that you just don't even want to bring it up anymore more. And you just want to move forward and progress your life in like a different direction that has nothing to do with soccer. So, um, yeah. And I mean, like I said, like I can only, I can only speak from my own experience, but, um, and, and I mean, I've, I ha I used to blog a lot about stuff and I've kind of just kept my, my mouth shut and my distance and whatever, but for whatever reason I was, I actually just came back from a trip and was jet lagged and was up at 3 a.m. when, I saw the stuff about Alan and I just fired that like blog together. So I wasn't totally even probably in my right mind when I wrote it, but no, I'm just joking. But, um, but no, I'm just starting to feel the strength to start talking about stuff. And that situation in particular, like I said, tied into other things that I'd experienced and just general themes that I thought were important to address. And, and like I said, like I'm always a person where, you know, I think it's important to step up and say something um, if you can, you know, help. And, and, you know, I, I think that, um, I, I think the main issue, to be honest, with the situation that happened with Alan and the problem in general is that there's just a real lack of like transparency and accountability. And I don't think like, you know, I, I think it goes bigger than the players being expected to speak up. Like, I think the governing bodies, um, FIFA, whoever, like there needs to be structures in place. So there's not there's not the opportunity to have to put players into the position to be the ones to speak up and say something, let's say to defend Alan, like speaking about that speci like specific situation, like it should be like a, you know, there should be a transparent, like a, you know, thing from a, a governing body that if a coach is getting sacked five months from the world cup, that like there's clear reason as to why that's happening. You know what I mean? The onus shouldn't be on the players or whoever behind the scenes to, you know, put the stress on them to break the news or whatever. Like that, like that's one thing that I I'm really passionate about moving forward is that like there needs to be structures in place. So it's not a, it's it just these sorts of situations aren't even allowed to fester. And, and I mean, nobody wants to see anybody's character get assassinated unfairly. Do you know what I mean? And, and so um, that's where I, I don't think it should be on the players, you know, per se, like the onus on them to be the ones to speak up. It should be coming from mandated structure and protocol from governing bodies to be the ones to, to, to be the ones dictating what happens in those sorts of situations. And they should be the ones that are, propelling the truth forward as opposed to expecting a bunch of players making nothing that are already in a stressful situation trying to make teams to be the ones to say something or someone that's experienced something crappy in their career to be the one to say something when they're probably just trying to move on from everything too that's just my two cents on it yeah no absolutely and, and it's funny that it's it's uh, i always say it's funny it's never funny i don't i need to stop saying that things are funny 
Um, <laughs> but it's it's quite ironic, I guess, that the three kind of um, examples that come to mind are three that you have very um, very extensive uh, um, experience with, which would be the Canadian um, system, the American system, and the Australian system, and they all suffer from you know just being a bad system. You know the set the yeah. setup and, and the governance is very very poor. And the way that mm-hmm. they the way that they try to conduct business is just not is it's not ideal it's not proper, and the power that they hold over men's and women's players and just over yeah. o- over their entire uh, soccer ecosystems is just mm-hmm. it, it's very poorly designed and it enables these problems to exist and like you said fester and um and conti- and, and they're just going to continue to happen unless that that system change happens and i agree with you yeah. 1000% that it should not be on, on on the players it should be on the system to fix a lot of these problems a, a proper system sorts a lot of this stuff out you know absolutely is, is it going to solve everything probably not you know everything has problems but you know if you can go from 50 problems to 5 problems just an example right like that that'd be massive progress and, yeah. and a lot of times the system is what's going to solve that. And it's just, I almost said it's funny again. It's not funny. Um, it, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, I always come back to this and I don't know if you, if you would agree with this or not, but it's the, the lack of, of, of competition and the lack yeah. of, of ideas being thrown into a, an arena and, and letting those ideas fight, fight it out to see which one is best. It's absolutely it's, it's that, that is what Canada lacks. That is what, United States lacks. That is what Australia yeah. lacks when it comes to soccer. Yeah. You get this yeah. like, um, one size fits all attitude from the top down, and yeah. that 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 one that mindset alone is what kills the soccer environments in those three countries. Well, and I think I think I mean I've I've written a bit about this previously, but I think also too you know there's a reason in in our societies economically that monopolies are frowned upon. Do you know what I mean? And, and it's, and it's, you know, exactly a lot of the things you're talking about, like the, the lack of creativity, the lack, you know, it's, I always liken it to, you know, if I step on the field and I know I'm in the starting 11 every week, like I, I can, I can be good. I can be bad. I can sit and pick flowers the whole game. Like I can, you know, line Shavasana, like, you know what I mean? And I, and I know that I'm starting every week, you know, and, and I'm not becoming better. The people around me aren't becoming better. It becomes stagnant. And, and I, and I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I, I'm, I, I think the, obviously I grew up in Canada, so the, the system I'm the most familiar with, um, and obviously a lot of my playing experiences came within the Canadian system. And, and it's a bit, you know, again, like the U S is quite big, but I think Canada, maybe like I experiencing, I experienced things more um, intensely just because it's a smaller country, but that was a huge problem, you know, um, like the, the whole concept of, you know, and I'll use my white caps um, experience as an example, you know, like that was the only, that was the only like club team you could really play for if you wanted a shot with the Canadian team and the amount of power that that gives the people that are in charge to treat the players, whatever way they want the club to treat the players or whatever they what way they want. Um, and it just creates this awful culture. And, um, and, and I think that that's the kind of thing, like, well, you know, when I played in Denmark, like that would never have happened because you're at a club and, and things aren't going really good. And, and, you know, so you go to another club, like, you know, and, and, and yeah, and, and something, you know, and then another club starts and is, you know, really revolutionary with your ideas and that club rises to the top and that's where, you, you know what I mean? And, and so it's, it's, um, 
Yeah, like like really in in terms of like on a really micro level for players, like like that's you know we can talk about economically and on the world stage and whatever, but like the the singular experience of a player within a system that's not competitive is horrific, and the amount of power that it gives those people in those clubs, um, it just wouldn't happen. And that's what I mean about the system. Like if you have a system, like you said, that's competitive, um, and and there's other entities allowed or, or whatever, it just it's it's just a natural way of keeping like a very a very safe order, a very good order, a very progressive, positive order to things. Do you know what I mean? And it's a way to just naturally raise the level even higher. And I think, I mean, I do think like Canada, the U.S., I mean, I don't know, again, I don't, I don't pay that much attention to Australia, to be honest, but like, but those are, you know, between Canada and the U.S., like, you know, even you look at the, at the other countries in the world stage, you know, in all capacities from development to the international level and, and where they're at compared with where, you know, where we're at. But, but I mean, I think again, for me, and, and I'll speak with Canada, like, I mean, like there needs to be like a, like a safe, positive structure for players to grow and develop. And like, that should be step one of any system because, you know, again, like who cares, who cares about winning anything if, if you don't have players that are in like in, in an environment that they're, you know, being able to like love and thrive the game, like or thrive within the game. Do you know what I mean? And I think that that's on a micro level, the result of a non-competitive system and I've experienced it and it's awful. <laughs> so that's why for me, like I do, I totally agree with you. And, and I do think that a competitive structure is the way to, to just force everybody to be better. And at the end of the day, like, isn't that what this is all about anyways, you know, like becoming the best that we possibly can in all capacities. Absolutely. Man, I didn't expect to talk about this with you. That's cool. <laughs> it's, it's something that, that I'm, I mean, people that listen to this podcast obviously understand or, or know that I'm very active on social media and, and on this podcast talking about promotion relegation in, in the American system and how just that, that introduction of, of, you know, total competition would change yeah. everything in, in American soccer. And I, yeah. I get comments actually from time to time, not as much recently. Some of the Canadian guys unfollowed me actually, cause I don't talk enough about Canadian soccer, but, um, but those <laughs> How guys devastating. Would, yeah, I know. No, <laughs> um, but, but those guys would, they would chime in all the time and be like, Hey, like, don't forget about us. Like we have these same problems too. I'm like, man, I can't fight for your country too. Like I'm, I'm, I'm fighting this war down here. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but yeah, that's, it's, you know, people make fun of it and, and, and try to make, um, you know, make a sound like, well, I'll give you the example, right? I'm, and, and I'm sure a lot of people, maybe you might even know who he is too, but this guy named Ted, who's on social media all the time, just pounding his keyboard about promotion relegation in, in the United States. And so people make fun of him, call him like tinfoil yeah. Ted and, oh, conspiracy theory this and conspiracy theory that and, and blah, blah, blah. And, and they make fun of it, right? Like they, they make fun of this uh this promotion relegation movement um be, and, and they make it seem like we think it's going to fix all the problems like this is just what was it the panacea of of yeah. you know of of the soccer world and it's like no it's not going to fix everything guys like there's going to be corruption there's going to be um you know uh, bad business deals there's going to be a, a shit ton of problems that still exist yeah. but yeah but give 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 us that that one thing, and I think a lot of problems sort themselves out just I, by the way that I people agree. do business. Um, I now, agree. I'm, now I'm becoming a broken record. <laughs> no, and like I said, like I, I like I, I really have pulled myself out of the soccer world big time over the last like just like since my own career ended, and just honestly to sort of like 
just, you know, again, when you're, when you're sort of like that defined my life for such a long period of my life, you know, and, and like I said, there was a lot of bad experiences that, I mean, again, I, I, I traveled the world. I experienced, I mean, I met some incredible people. I had some incredible coaches. I have, you know, but there was a lot of like stress and bad to it too. So for me, I mean, I've stepped right out of it. And I mean, I started my Twitter account in 2010. So my timeline still littered with soccer people. And, you know, so, I mean, I, whenever I, you know, log into Twitter, I see, I see stuff, but I, I really haven't followed a lot of stuff but um but yeah I mean and, and like I said for me it's just I, I mean I'm all for a competitive like I've experienced the European system very like at a very you know close level from like you know between my experience and um between uh sorry Denmark and Norway I had about six seasons over there so I mean I I understand the European system quite well um and that's and, and I completely agree with you where it's it's I really like, again, and I always go back to economics, like there is a reason in our society that it's illegal to have monopolies, you know, and, and it just, it's just, it's, it's so interesting to me that the soccer world just seems to be its own little niche that like, it just, it's its own planet that, you know, kind of exists without these rules. And, and, um, and yeah, I do. I absolutely think it hurts the game. And I absolutely agree with you that if it's again, like, again, I'm, I'm big on the metaphor, but like it's, it is the whole idea of like, if if I have to show up every single day and earn my spot on the field and I have to be at my best and I have to, you know, figure out the way a way to beat the guy next to me or whatever, I'm I'm gonna be better as an individual and my team's gonna be better for that competition. And and without that, I, I agree with you, like like there is. There's a whole host of problems that come from monopolies that have been proven in society over and over again. And, and um, yeah, like like I said, I, I I absolutely agree with you on that front. And like I said, like I've experienced the ramifications of that from just a very micro level as a player, where you really because there's nowhere else to go. It's the only place in town if you want to play high level soccer. And you know, and then you have the then it just again you have the the douchebag power tripping coach that that does whatever they want and like run it like a dictatorship and then you have the guys above it that they don't really care like especially on the women's side like what's really happening uh, or you know they're just trying to protect their own little territory so it's not you know it doesn't become about what's best for the game or best for the person it just becomes for like how can everybody just protect their piece of the pie and and I think yeah I I, I think I mean I I think at the end of the day, honestly, because it can be depressing and it can feel like there's this big, you know, world of problems that you can't, but I, I think it just goes back to again. Um, and, and I've always sort of had this ideology where like make the little space around yourself better, like speak up about stuff that is in your little sphere. And that's kind of, if everybody does that, then the collective becomes better. And, and yeah, hopefully with lots of people fighting this stuff, like hopefully, hopefully there does start to become, you know, change in accountability. And I think there's been, you know, even like, if you want to go even broader with like the whole me too movement and stuff, like there has been a shift in, you know, sort of traditional power, untouchable type of people that have been able to do things whatever way that they've wanted to. And, and like you've seen examples of brave people starting to speak up and do stuff and seeing the shift even in our society, like I'm, I'm not just using the Me Too movement as an example. And, and I think hopefully, you know, we can all draw inspiration from that and, and like make our own spheres better and try and make the soccer, the, the soccer world become a, just a better experience for everybody, you know? So people that are listening to this now have kind of heard us dance around this topic of um, this Coach Allen down in Australia and this problem and this thing that you wrote about. And one of the things that I frequently get 
criticism for is that, you know, I, I talk in general, I talk about a, a broad topic and I never give specific examples. And so I, what I thought was going to be really special or what I think is going to be really special about this episode is to dive in headfirst to a specific problem and, and, and kind of highlight an actual, you know, a, a detailed problem. So I know I told you 45 minutes, but I'm hoping I can squeeze like maybe 10 or 15 more out of you. Um, okay. So, yeah. we can, so we can talk about this because I want to give people a specific example of something that you know was wrong and how somebody spoke up about it. And so can you kind of describe what that situation was that happened in Australia and then what what you ultimately decided to write about um, at, at 3 a.m. when you had jet lag? <laughs> I mean, I don't I, like again, I, I'm I'm sitting on my computer like everybody else like, you know, hearing, um, or just seeing like the sort of the coach has been sacked five months before and the kind of innuendo that it's like a toxic environment and, um, you know, just a narrative that sort of started to get spun, um, by the Federation. And then, and then, as I mentioned in the blog, like the, you know, the media that kind of jumps on and throws the narrative out there, like, Oh, well, we know the real story of what's going on. Trust us. Like the Federation was more than justified in doing that. And, and like I said, I don't know, I don't know specifics behind the scenes of, of what happened. Um, I actually do have a friend that's still, um, you know, in the pool for Australia and I'd asked her about it. And she said that, you know, she had no idea what was going on either that, you know, she had a good experience with him. Um, but I think, um, I mean, that, that's, that's the situation where there was, you know, again, he just got sacked suddenly five months before world cup, which, you know, makes everybody wonder like, what could he have done? That was so terrible to have had that happen. I don't know. I, when I, when I wrote the blog, I said, again, based on my own experiences that I thought there was two things. Um, there was even there, there was something that he had done, which again, I've, I've not heard. And again, like I said, the, the women's soccer world's quite small and I'm sure if, Again, I'm, I mean, like I said, I'm removed enough from it that I might not have known, but, um, but I also feel like that if it was something specific that had happened, that it kind of travels the grapevine. And, but I like, honestly, again, like everybody that I know has great things to say about him. I can only say my own experience with him. And I thought he was extremely professional, extremely sound at what, what he did and, and the kind of coaches, um, again, as, as female players that you want, that is just professional and high standards and all that type of stuff. So that was the first thing that I said in the blog. I said that, that I'd been in situations where in Canada, three weeks before a World Cup, a youth World Cup, a coach, a head coach got fired and there was concrete, you know, there was concrete information delivered um, to the person that we were interviewed by about what had happened. Um, and in that situation, again, like I, I used the example where if he did do something that it should have, you know, like, like, yeah, if, if, if you, if Alan did something serious enough that, that it warranted getting sacked five months, well then like, you know, like, then, then if it's about player safety, then absolutely like, let, let's hear it. But that's, that's where for me, it's like, you know, I, from what I've seen on the Australian and they're kind of dancing, Oh, what well, was player service, but actually no, it wasn't. And, and so that to me is a little bit like red flagish in terms of, okay, I don't, I don't personally. And again, I'm just, I'm just a armchair quarterback, like everybody else in the situation without any concrete anything. But again, I'm just sort of taking my own experiences and putting it on that. Um, so that, that to me, again, if it's something that he did from a player safety standpoint, absolutely. It needs to be, it needs to be aired out, you know, for sure. From a, from a standpoint, because I've seen too many coaches that have done things that have had it brushed under the rug 
bag and then they've gone back out. But then again, like I've also seen where people can get their character and reputation smeared off of doing nothing because the Federation wants to deliver a narrative that's just they're hoping nobody pays attention to and the coach is just gone, you know? So, so that was at one point. And again, I'm being an armchair quarterback from my experience, from what I know, I don't think that, that it was, I don't think it was that. I think it was more of the Federation narrative where for whatever reason, they didn't want him there anymore. And I've seen that happen. Like I said, in the blog um, with a Canadian coach back in the day that had sort of was pushing boundaries on the, on the system and, and demanding more for the female players and, you know, pissed a lot of people off and then ended up getting sacked, you know, again, very suddenly and, and that type of thing. And, and so again, for me, that was more of, uh, that was more the vibe that I got from the whole situation. And, and like I said, the reason why I stepped up and said something was because, um, you know, I just, A, I really believe strongly in player safety. And I think there needs to be a lot more accountability and a lot more transparency on that front. And B, I just also think that, you know, these federations should not be allowed to just smear like good people and um, their character and their reputations without having to back it up with, with some kind of information. And yeah, if they wanted to just get rid of them, then that's great. Just get rid of them. But, but don't, you know, throw out all this innuendo about, you know, toxic culture and all this type of stuff when most people that I've talked to have said good things about him, you know? So again, like I said, I'm totally armchair quarterbacking like everybody else, but based on my experiences, that's just, like I said, I just felt it was important to say um, that I really, like I had a great experience with him and, and I know other people have had a great experience with him as well. And um, yeah. <laughs> that's basically it. It's super important though that you that you came out and and said something and and not that you know your voice is going to go you know rumbling through the Australian um, soccer corridors, right? Um, like you kind of mentioned, you're you're a little bit removed from the soccer scene and have been for you know a couple of years, but um, but but it's important that and we've and we've touched on it too, right? Is that now that you're in a situation where you can say something and you. Your, your livelihood doesn't depend on them, right? Like you, you're not no. worried about making the roster on, on Sunday. Um, no. <laughs> and, and that gives on my you... women's team, maybe, but yeah, no, <laughs> just joking. But that, but that gives you the, the ability to, to state your opinion where a lot of the girls, I'm sure, in that situation th- that they're going through feel like you know they have to have a zipper on their mouth and they, oh, absolutely. And they can't say anything. So whether, absolutely. whether it's um, – right or wrong or whatever they are probably paralyzed right now by by the situation and you know they don't want to of course and, and this is where I go back to what what I said earlier and maybe my my frustration was directed at the wrong people right but of course the people that are involved and in, and and have a chance to go play for the the national team at the world cup why in their right mind would they say anything that would fuck up that opportunity for them right so of course yeah. they're, they're going to sit there and, and and see how things play out and and maximize their opportunity, rightfully so. But that's yeah. why I thought it was really interesting to to read your your blog post, which I'll link to in, in the show notes of, of this one, and people can read and, and get a a better sense of of what we've been talking about this whole time. Well, and, and something else I just want to touch on real fast too. On that note, like I actually Ada Hegerberg that just won the Belanda or. Um, I actually was teammates with her when she was 14. Um, so obviously it's been really cool to see her sort of progress through the ranks to where she's at. But, um, you know, she's basically said she's not playing for Norway because she doesn't believe that they are, you know, doing enough on the women's side. And so she's sitting out the 2019 World Cup. So Jesus, I think for, I didn't know that. Yeah. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so that I mean, um, and sort of de facto, her sister um, Andrina also um, hasn't been called back into Norway since Ada took that stand. Um, and you know, both sisters are like would be shoe ins for the Norwegian team. But yeah, that that was a huge thing um, that you know Ada is refusing to play at the 2019 World Cup. Just won the you know play like the World Player of the Year, and now. Um, won't be at the new 2019 World Cup. So I think, you know, I think to me, like, that's really inspiring where, you know, you're seeing people and, and granted, like, Ada, again, is in a different situation to like, uh, you know, a bottom feeder trying to make a pro roster and on, you know, a thousand bucks a month. Like, she's obviously, she has a nice career carved out for her. But at the same time, I mean, again, like, that's, I mean, that gives me a lot of hope for like the next generation and, and someone like her that's, you know, in that platform and that, is taking a stand on something that matters to her and ruffling feathers and, you know, not needing to be so vanilla. Um, you know, that, that to me, like, that's something that I think, again, if you want to sort of spin things in a positive way and, and feel hope for the future, like that's, that's a great thing when you have the top player in the world taking a stand like that and being brave enough to speak up and say stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean, if, yeah, if you don't know, like that's a story definitely worth checking out if, if you haven't read up on it, but, but one, yeah. One of the things I wrote down earlier as you were talking, I, I can't remember exactly what you were saying at the time. I wrote down a timestamp to go revisit it though. But what I wrote down was what makes you untouchable? Because there's certain players that can do things like that, like, like she's doing and taking a stand because she's basically untouchable at this, at, at this time. Like, you know, her, her, her livelihood is locked in. Um, and, yeah. and she can go play club soccer and, and, and make her, make her, her wage and, and her, her life is not going to be severely impacted by taking yeah. this stance uh, against the world cup. But what makes a player untouchable like that, that to me is, is really, is a really interesting question and, and kind of like thought experiment because it, it, uh, it doesn't, it, it's, it's hard to be untouchable in, in these weird system environments that we that we have in, in the country we've been talking about well and, and i think it, like i mean i'll use canada as an example from like a quote-unquote un, like people you know things that people that you would think were untouchable that weren't but like 2005 um christine latham Charlton nonan and charmaine hooper who i think is i think the only uh, she has some major honor with fifa I, I can't even remember but but anyways charmaine at the time was like the best female player in the history of Canada. Um, Sharolta was a longtime starter for Canada. Christine was a longtime starter for Canada. Um, and the three of them like took a stand against the, the, the way things were with the 2005, um, well, or the, the lead up, the, there was a residency basically that was sort of thrown out of nowhere in Vancouver. And basically everybody was expected to move to Vancouver with like not very much notice. And the three of them took a stand and didn't show up to a training camp in Newfoundland. And basically they got cut and never played for Canada again. So I think, you know, I think again, in terms of cultures and environments, like at least in Canada, that set a very clear message that like, you know, here's like a Canadian legend and two longtime starters and you know they're they're just they they disagree they take a stand and then they get the leg taken out from under them never to play for Canada again so um you know I I think that again at the time and obviously then that just creates an even bigger culture of fear of standing up for stuff but um you know I I don't know what I, I would say I would say if 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 um well, I mean, I think it's also too, like, I think as a player from an untouchable standpoint, like you have to be willing to accept the consequences of st like to standing up for stuff like that makes you untouchable in the sense of like, do whatever you want to me for taking a stand. Like, I don't care. Um, but I think again, you know, the financial piece for sure, like Otta is still able to, 
you know, she has a profile. She's still playing Champions League finals and, and is getting a chance to be, you know, like getting experience at, at the highest level. And, and um, you know, and, and in that situation, like she doesn't need Norway financially. Do you know what I mean? Whereas like a lot of players are dependent on national team selection in order to, let's say, get visas to play in Europe or do you know what I mean? And, and that's really the only place right now that I think women are making a decent salary off the game. So, um so that's what I would say. I would, I think it's like financial security and then just not giving a crap about the consequences, like with Ada, not, you know, being okay with not playing at the 2019 world cup, like standing up and saying something matters more to her. And also too, I mean, she's only 23. So, you know, she theoretically could have another two or three world cups to play in anyways. So, um, yeah. So I think that that, that would be it financial and then just personally being okay with whatever the consequences are. At the end of every interview, I ask the same question. And man, I'm, I'm learning a lot about myself actually in this interview. I need to stop saying that because people that listen to this podcast, they're like, John, we know you're going to ask this question. You don't need to. <laughs> um, okay. But at the end of every interview, I ask, what do people need to know? And so, you know, with your, with all of your experience from, you know, youth to pro from Canada to Australia, everything that you've seen and, and experienced in the game. I feel like your your perspective is very unique and you know you could maybe answer this question looking back or looking forward but um what do what do people need to know Um wow that <laughs> that's an interesting question to try to think of on the spot um what yeah, do people it's, need it's to actually, know? It's actually why I, I ask it and then I then I explain it and then I ask it again. So hopefully I try to buy you a couple oh, okay. seconds. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> um, I mean, what do people need to know? I mean, I think people need to know that right now the way that the culture is, it's I don't think it's it's uh I don't think players mentally from like a health perspective, I don't think it's a I, I don't think players have a lot of power. And I think that that's something I personally think needs to change. Um, uh, that's, I would say people need to know that. Um, what do you mean? What do you mean by it from a health perspective? I mean, I think just to stress the anxiety being so vulnerable so often in a lot of circumstances, I mean, that's what I mean about mental health. Like there's serious ramifications that come from that, you know, in terms of, I mean, like, like I literally, I feel like I've been piecing back my life together after my experience as a, as a player and some of the situations that I've been in and the kind of the, just again, being in like so vulnerable and, and, and again, like caring so much about the sport and having people that don't have your best interest, basically making calls and decisions and, and that type of thing. So, I mean, I, I, I do think like a lot, I mean, and you look at a lot of players really struggle and it's, I mean, it goes across sports too. And it's not just, you know, a lot of it's an identity thing as well, but um, I think there needs to be much more attention paid like to the mental health of players for sure. Like personally. Got it. No, that's, that's important. Um, I cut you off though. I don't know if you, it sounds like you, you no, were... I'm done. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was on probably a ramble that needed to be cut off. So <laughs> okay. um, where, where can people find, ways to connect with you and where can people find your your writing and, and anything else that you want them to find about you or, or what you're trying to what messages you're trying to get out to the world um i write a blog that i um you know soccer stuff other stuff um i it just my first and last name so 
C-I-A-R-A-M-C-C-O-R-M-A-C-K. Um, it's my Twitter handle. It's the um, URL for the blog. I think, yeah, that pretty much is uh, the best way to catch me if, uh, yeah, if anyone wants to engage any further. All right. Perfect. Um, anything that we that we didn't get to that you that you anticipated talking about or that you wanted to talk about? I want to make sure I, I, I give you the opportunity to, to get anything else off your chest if you need to. Um, no, I think, I think I, I think I've been talking for a while. I'm sure people are ready to move on from the sound of my voice. Um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, no, I, I think we've we've covered a lot of, um, yeah, very interesting conversation. I appreciate you having me on. All right. Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 podcast. And a big thank you to our sponsor, Bounce Athletics. I also want to leave you with one note from one of our members of the 343 coaching education program. His name is Thomas, and he's been a member for quite a while. And this is what he had to say. If you want to play insanely good with your team and start to understand the possession and positional game, this will give you a head start. I have tried the material on three ordinary teams, and after a year, they totally dominate the local teams. After two years, they are among the best in the region. The program 343 offers is not a complicated curriculum. It's actually simpler than you might think. But instead of more, you have to go deep in every detail. Thomas, thank you so much for that beautiful review, and I hope that everybody else finds that valuable. If you want more information about the 343 Coaching Education Program, the program that helps support and fund this podcast, you can visit 343coaching.com. All right, we will catch you guys next time here on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening.